Thanks, Colin, for leading us. As the band makes their way down, would you pray with me so we hear the word of the Lord? Father, not to us. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name be glory and honor because of your mercy, because of your steadfast love, for the sake of your name. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. It's an honor to come and address you this morning, and just to get the elephant in the room out of the way, it is difficult to preach my last sermon to you as a pastor of Oak Park Baptist Church, and it is tempting for farewell sermons to become a little bit self-indulgent, um, and I don't want to do that. Um, but while I am a happy expositional preacher, I believe in going through the Bible in order as much as possible in the diet of the life of a church. When you're given a one-off, you go for the goat. You go for the punchline. And so I'm preaching this morning what I want to preach, but I trust that it is also what we need to hear. Because I want to go to the heart of what I think is the most important thing for you to hear. It's the most important thing that I could say to you. Um, in a lot of ways, as I was preparing this sermon and thinking about what is the most important thing that I could say to you, what is the thing that I want to leave you with, um, I, I realized that this is, in a way, kind of the conclusion of that, the discussion of, that we had about the glories of the cross. There's one more thing that I need to say about that. There's one more thing that, that is implicit in everything that we said about the cross that if we don't say it explicitly, I'm afraid that people will miss. And this is, this is the heart of the gospel, the goal of the gospel. Why do we have sanctification? Why do we have justification? You remember all of those aspects of the gospel that we talked about, each of them in themselves glorious, that God would forgive sinners. That is glorious. That God would, would use His sanctifying Spirit to make us holy. But that is glorious. Heaven is glorious, but none of those things answer the question, why? So if we don't drive back to the heart of the gospel, why of the gospel, why does God do these glorious things? The rest of our construction just breaks apart. So... This morning, I want to get us to the goal of the gospel, the things that holds that together. And what better place to go as we think about the gospel, and I say farewell, than to go to John 17 where Jesus says farewell. His farewell is far more important than mine, far more insightful than mine. And so turn with me, if you would, to John 17. John 17, one of my favorite passages, it comes at the end of Jesus' life. And Jesus has just had the Last Supper with his disciples as we celebrated communion this morning. Jesus has celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples. And he spends all of chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 teaching and preparing his disciples for his impending death. He explains his purpose on earth. He explains his work. He lays the foundations of the church. He even prepares them for what will happen when he's gone. He very openly tells them that they will be persecuted and then lays the foundation for how they ought to respond. This is Jesus framing his ministry. In a sense, this is Jesus' theological explanation of his work. 
So often I think we think of, well, Jesus just did some stuff, and then people came after him like Paul to talk about it. Well, no, Jesus said some stuff about the stuff that he did. And so Jesus, in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, is explaining the gospel, explaining the purpose of what he's come to do and what he's about to do. And at the end of these final instructions, Jesus prays for his disciples. I love this passage because it's the one place in the entire Bible that we actually see a significant chunk of Jesus' prayer life. We know throughout his ministry that Jesus prays much. The Bible describes him often breaking away from the crowds to go to the Lord in prayer. But never do we get to see one of those prayers in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We get little instances of him praying, but it's, it's usually just a, a, a truncated short request presented for effect so that the disciples will see and know when he prays before Lazarus' tomb, he says, I'm praying not because I didn't know that you were in power, but because I want them to. <laughs> so much of Jesus' prayer life that we see in the Gospels is him showing us how we ought to do it. Remember what, the thing that we normally think of as the Lord's Prayer. Well, that's not really actually Jesus' prayer. That's Jesus' instructions to his disciples how to pray. And it's kind of a bullet list, really. He said, well, start this way, our Father who art in heaven. And then once you get done saying that, you better say something about how his name is holy. That's a good idea, point two. And he just kind of moves down through the line. So this is the one place in all of the scriptures that we see Jesus really pouring out his heart in prayer. We see what the Lord would really pray. But even more precious, we hear the words of the Lord as he prays over his disciples. Have you ever wondered what Jesus would pray over you? What that would sound like? You know, the scripture says that he's our intercessor, that he is in heaven praying for us right now. What is he praying? Well, John 17, 20, I do not ask these things for these only, but for those who will believe in their word. In the infinite mind of the deity of Christ, in John 17, he prays over you. This is what your Lord prays for you. And I absolutely believe that in the infinite mind of his divine nature, he knew you personally even as he was praying these words. give you an example. Do you pray over your kids at night? I hope you do. I hope your kids get the opportunity to hear you praying to God for them. A really simple thing. Take you like 60 seconds. But then they know what you want for them. So not only does this passage give us the emotional weight of hearing our Lord and Savior pray for us, but it gives us direction because it tells us what He wants for us what he would have God give us for our future. How does the Savior pray for you? The answer is in John chapter 17. Let's read the passage together, and then I want to dive into it with you. It can be up on the screens, or you can look at it. You don't have to read it out loud with me, but read along if you would. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all that you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
I glorified on you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So here Jesus is praying for his disciples. And it says after he finishes, they're sitting around the table. Picture this in your mind. They're sitting around the table. Judas has betrayed Jesus. Jesus has presented his body in the form, this picture of bread and wine, and said, look what's going to about to happen. I'm about to leave you. I'm about to leave, but it is better for you that I leave so that I can do my work and go to my Father and send the Helper. And after this bombshell that the Savior that they love is going to leave, this is what he prays. Verse 1, he lifts his eyes to heaven, and he says, Father, the hour has come. There's a finality to that, isn't it? The hour has come. This is the pinnacle of his ministry, the goal to which all of his work has pointed. The hour, right? All the teaching, all the healing, the pardoning of the adulteress, the cleansing of the temple, none of it was an end in and of itself. None of it was enough ministry for Jesus to talk about it. No, this is what it led to. The hour is what it mattered for. So, Whatever example, precedent, principle Jesus set in his life and ministry is meaningless if we don't understand it through this hour. This is the hour that Jesus came for. Even more than his ministry on earth, this is the hour. This is the hour that the prophets had longed to see. The hour when the Father would be plainly revealed, John 16, 25. The hour when the temple would be removed and we would worship God in spirit and truth, John 4, 23. The hour when the Son of Man would be glorified, John 12, 23. In eternity past, when God laid out his plan of salvation within the halls of time and the angels looked on it and marveled, it was this hour that they were looking to. This is the hour. And what is it that Jesus is concerned happen in this hour? Father, glorify your Son so that he may glorify you. As Jesus approaches his death, he prays that in it glory would be put on display, that the magnificence of the splendor of God would be revealed in him. Why? In order that he could shine the glory back on the Father. So in essence, we could say very simply that the goal of the gospel is this glory of God. But I think that you are, you are all bright people. I know that you are, I've ministered with you for a while. I know that you are smart. I know that you guys read your Bibles. I know that you're well taught. I know many of you are brave and even signed up for that systematic theology class, even though the title was scary. So you're probably not surprised to hear that the glory of God is the goal of the gospel. You're thoughtful. You're well taught. You, you knew that was coming. But consider with me, if you would, this interesting omission in this story. You see, Jesus says that the glory of the Lord will be revealed in this hour. That's his request. Father, in this hour, glorify me that I might glorify you. But what doesn't happen between now and the cross? There will be no glorious transfiguration of Jesus before the cross. There will be no light from heaven. There will be no descending dove. In the, this hour, Jesus will be brutally murdered. 
And the only answer from heaven will be silence and darkness. And you have to think that maybe the disciples were asking, Jesus, where is the glory? Where is the glory in that? We've seen you transfigured. We heard there was a star at your birth and angel choirs and at your baptism a dove from heaven and God spoke. And now you are alone and dying. Where is the glory? It's right to ask. In fact, in a sense, this text almost demands we ask the question, how is it that God will be glorified in the horrific act of the murder of his son? Where are the shining lights and angel choirs? In fact, where anywhere in the crucifixion is anything that we would define as glory? Prophet Isaiah wrestles with this even before it happens. He had no form or majesty that we would look on him, no beauty that we would desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Where is the glory? And yet Jesus, even in this prayer, makes a statement about how God will be glorified in the cross. So there's a short but theologically packed cause and effect chain here about not only that there will be glory in the cross, but how there will be glory in the cross. You see, I think this is important because when we often think about the glory of God, which is talked about all throughout Scripture, we think of the glory of God as something distant and impersonal, right? Glory is shining lights and angel choirs. It's fireworks in the distance. Glory has nothing to do with me. It's something that I merely observe passively. And so because of that, for many of us, talking about the glory of God can feel, if we're really honest, We want to feel good about it. We want God to be glorified, but a lot of the time, it just kind of feels, uh, yeah, okay, you do that, God. That's good. We feel completely disconnected from it, dispassionate about it, and we probably feel bad about that. But we don't realize that what Jesus is going to present is the way in which God is glorified through the gospel is deeply personal for you. See, at the cross, the way God chooses to show his glory results in the greatest purpose-fulfilling, soul-satisfying delight for you. The way God will reveal his glory at the cross is to give you something worth living for. So you are profoundly involved in this revelation of glory. You are intimately near. God is going to use your life as a means to this amazing magnificence in the gospel. So God being profoundly excited about his glory is really good for you. Let me show you this this chain, this cause and effect that happens in the gospel. Jesus has it all here in about two sentences. All right, verse one again, read it with me. The Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since, is that first link in the chain? Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all those you have given him. 
So since, here's that first link in the chain. It's a cause word. God glorify you since you've done something. This is a cause word, but Jesus has it flipped around. He's, he's doing it backwards. He starts with the ultimate goal, the glory of God, and then he backs it up. How did we get there? Right? So Jesus says this is how we got there. In eternity past, God, gave, God the Father gives God the Son out of his own authority— Getting to some heady Trinity stuff here, right? God the Father gives the Son the authority over all life. That's step number one. God, gives the Son, God the Father gives God the Son authority over all life. Why? It's in the second half of verse 2. To give eternal life to those you have given him. So that's the second link in the chain. See how this is starting to develop? The end goal, the glory of God through Christ. But the way we got there, God gives, God the Father gives God the Son the authority to give eternal life. And I think that we're pretty good with just stopping there when we talk about the gospel. We just go, okay, good. Well, that's the gospel, right? Jamin, good. It's, it's, you know, it's only 1130. We'll close our Bibles. We'll beat the Methodists to the cracker barrel. This is going to be great. God, in eternity past, gave Jesus the ability to give people eternal life. Hallelujah. Praise the Savior. Let's play the final song. But that's not where the verse ends. And in fact, I am afraid that for many people, that's where the verse ends. It's my fear that many people have been told that the gospel is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will receive eternal life, which is, you won't go to hell when you die. Right? That's the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, get out of hell free. That's what the gospel is to them. It's just, it's just freedom. And that can be, and we, we can phrase this a thousand different ways. It could be freedom from hell in the afterlife if you're afraid of death. It can be the joy of, of knowing that you're going to spend eternity with grandma. It can be freedom from hell in this life because you're racked by guilt. But all that they hear is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you're free of the stuff you don't want. And that is not Christianity. If that's what you believe, if you came here this morning and you have been told to be saved means you believe on Jesus and you just you feel better because you just don't have to worry about hell, you just don't have to worry about feeling guilty anymore, you just get a clean slate, if that is what you believe and that's where it stops, friend, listen to me, that is not what Jesus said. Please don't miss this. There's one more essential step to understanding what the gospel actually is. And Jesus is about to define what eternal life is. See, he says, the Father has given him authority so that he might give eternal life to his people, but then he doesn't leave us wondering what that eternal life is. And Jesus isn't going to answer the question with, you get to go to heaven. Look at what he says in verse 3. What is eternal life, right? If eternal life is the gift of salvation, what is eternal life? Verse 3, this, 
is eternal life. That they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Friends, the gift of eternal life, the goal of the gospel is knowing God. Not leaving behind the fear of death. Not having hoped that you'll see your loved ones again. Not a pie in the sky in the sweet by and by. That is not eternal life. The gift of eternal life is that they might know him. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So wrap your mind around that for a second. If that is the gift of eternal life, if that is the center of the gospel, after all of those other wonderful glories of the gospel that we've talked about, if that's where it terminates, if that's where it ends, if that's where the goal is, how many days do we wake up actually thinking about that as the goal of the, of the Christian life? How many days do you wake up and say, the purpose of my life today is knowing God? So that, that's the greatest gift I've been giving. That, that's the terminus. That's the end. That's the goal of my life. I want to know him. That's my whole job today. Whatever else I do is so that I might know him, so that I can be in fellowship with him. You see, I want to press into this today because I think the one truth that I fear you might miss is that the goal of our lives, the goal of the gospel, the reason you are being saved is so that you might know God. That's your purpose. You see, we talk about so many other things, and we need to talk about so many other things. We have to talk about the Christian life. The Christian life is hard. There's a lot of things that we need to learn. But the fact of the matter is, when you strip away a thousand wonderful sermons about how to forgive or how to parent... Even all these wonderful instructions that we've been getting on how to use our words and spend our money, when you strip them away at the ultimate goal, at the bottom of it all, when you lay on your deathbed, they won't remember how you used your words. You won't remember how your money is gone. As you take your last breath in this life and your first breath on the other side, the one thing that will matter is did you know him? So friends, a gospel that does not terminate in knowing God, not in impressing God, not in making peace with yourself, not even in being free from sin for its own reason, but a gospel that does not terminate in knowing God does not save. So I made this claim. I want to show it to you in the passage. And then I want to show it to you in Scripture as a whole. Let's look at this in the passage. We've got this chain that leads to the goal of the gospel, namely the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the chain starts in verse 1. We've said it many times. The Father gives this Son authority so that the Son may glorify the Father. How? In giving a gift, giving eternal life. And what is that gift? Here's that third link in the chain. The gift of eternal life is giving the ability to people to know God. See, this is how the glory of the cross is revealed. This is where the shining light that we were looking for happens. Eyes that were darkened by sin are opened to see and know the Father. 
through the beauty of the work of Jesus Christ. See, the bright light of glory at the cross wasn't a light from heaven like at his birth. No, it was a light shined onto our hearts. It wasn't a star above the hill of Calvary, but a light that shined on your soul so that you might finally see the greatness of who God is. Think about it. What does the cross actually show to you about God? How far would He go? How much would He give? How gracious is He at the cross? If the cross had not opened your eyes... If somewhere along the way, whether it was in a Baptist church when you're like four walking down the aisle, or if it was two weeks ago, somewhere, if you know Christ, God opened your eyes and you saw at the cross a God who loved you that much, and for the first time in your life, you actually saw his character and said, that is good. Friends, that is the glory of the cross, that Christ, in giving eternal life, opens the eyes of your heart that you might know him. We just sang it in that amazing Charles Wesley hymn, that thine eyes diffused a quickening ray. You you shined a light on me. You shined a light on me. And I awoke the dungeon flamed with light. That is how God chooses to reveal his glory at the cross. This means that God's glory revealed at the cross is your experiencing the excellencies of knowing God. See, that's why God's glory is so near to you. That's why it's not a far-off sunset or an exploding firework. No, the glory of God that you are to experience in the gospel is God drawing you near and opening your eyes that you might experience what He is really like. The cross glorifies God by revealing His character. The cross reveals God as the most loving, most powerful, most worthy person in the universe, and then it goes one step further of bringing you close to him that you might experience it. Friends, that's the logic of this passage, but then here's the flip side. The other side of the coin is that the gospel of the glory of God means that the goal of the Christian life for you Right? We saw the first side of the coin. The goal of the gospel is to bring glory. The second side of that coin. The goal of the Christian life for you is to know him. That's the purpose. That you might know him is the meaning of eternal life. So we've seen it in the passage. That's the glory that Jesus talks about. That's the glory that he wants to reveal is people knowing God then where do we see this in the rest of Scripture? Very quickly, I want to show you that this is all over the Scriptures. The goal of salvation throughout the entire Bible has been to know the Lord. And once you open your eyes to this, this is one of those biblical truths that I hope that once you open your eyes to this, you're going to start seeing it everywhere in the Bible. If I'm right, you will. That as you're reading your Bible, you're going to flip through and you're going to be like, Numbers, oh gosh, i got to read Numbers, it's on my list this week. Wait a minute, there's that knowing God stuff popping up again. How did that get in there? You flip through 2 Samuel, wait, wait a minute, knowing, how did knowing God get in here? Don't even, don't even try with the Psalms, every third Psalm is about this. 
Let me show you just a few spots. The goal of salvation has always been to know the Lord. Moses brings the people out of captivity. You know the story of the Exodus, either because you've read the book or because you watched the Charlton Heston movie. Not that bad of a movie. Pretty good if you haven't seen it. And if you're under the age of 30, you probably haven't, so go rent it. So Moses brings the people out of captivity and into the wilderness. We know the story pretty well. Golden calf, broken tablets. Moses goes back up the mountain. And God says that because of the sin of the people, he will save them from Egypt, but he won't go with them. That's, that's his punishment for the golden calf, is that he will save them from Egypt, but he's not going to go with them. And Moses' response is that if you don't go with us, that's not salvation. If you just keep us alive, what's the point? In Exodus 33, he says this. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you do not let me know whom you will send with me. For you said, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways that I might know you. See, Moses' goal isn't, oh, whew, good, we're out of Egypt. Problem solved. He says, God, I don't even know you. Show me your glory. If, you, if, you, if I've really found favor in your sight, I want to know you. He says to God immediately after that, if you will not go with us, do not bring us out of here. God, if, if you're not coming along, if you're not going to dwell with us, go ahead and just leave us in the desert to die. That would be better than to go to Egypt without you. Friends, Moses knew the goal of salvation is to dwell with God, to know him. David, it's all over the Psalms. David had a heart after God. You want to know what David's heart after God was about? Read the Psalms. The one thing he's obsessed with is knowing God. We read it this morning as our call to worship David after he has secured the kingship and his enemies have been put to shame. This is the one thing he asks. Psalm 27 verse 4, one thing I ask that I will seek after that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And then the poet, he just takes it even further, right, David? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For David, salvation was not getting the throne. For David, salvation was not the defeat of his enemies. It was not the freedom of Israel. No, he wasn't asking for any of those things. The one thing he asked for, let me dwell with the Lord. Let me be in his presence. Let me enter his temple again. The prophet Jeremiah, prophet Jeremiah predicts this future salvation. He tells of this amazing coming of the day of the Lord. And how does he choose to describe this? In Jeremiah 34, he says, No longer shall one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. For I will forgive their sin and remember their iniquity no more. For Jeremiah, salvation was knowing the Lord. 
Just to put the cherry on top, let's jump to the New Testament. Paul in Philippians 3, we know the passage well. If anyone thinks I have reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I have, I count it loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For Paul, salvation was knowing Jesus. The one thing worth living for was that he might know Jesus. See, that's why he gave everything up. Paul doesn't say, I give everything up. I count everything as lost because I want to get to heaven. I count everything as lost because I got to get rid of my guilt problem. I murdered a lot of people and I got to put that behind me. So I count it as lost. No, he says, I counted everything as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. Friends, there's so much more that we could say about this because this theme runs throughout all of Scripture. That the goal of the gospel is knowing your Savior. But I want to I dive in and explain this and apply it to our lives. Just four quick points. Uh, I told the band, hey, I've got four points for my conclusion. And they said, that's good. Um, I promise you these are quick. But I want to apply this to our lives to help us understand. I think for many people, if you're like me, and sin and life maybe a little dose of cynicism, uh, you go, I, I want to know Christ. What does that even mean? I, I can't call him up. I can't ask him out to coffee. How is it that, that this ultimate joy, I see it in Moses, I see it in David, but that's not how I feel. Well, maybe we can take a few steps. So why is it important to you to know that the ultimate goal of the gospel is knowing God? Well, one, because you were made for this. This is, this is what you were designed for. This is how God knit you together, is to desire and pursue and be fulfilled only in knowing Christ. Augustine most famously said it, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find our rest in you. The Westminster Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? What's our purpose in life? Lots of people walking around on the streets asking that question. What's the purpose in life? The answer, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So, so where are these extra-biblical but helpful theologies coming from? Well, they, they take it from the whole storyline of Scripture. What happens? God creates man, and together they walk in the garden. And what is the penalty for sin? Well, immediately we, we're well trained. We say, well, the wages of sin is death. Great. But what's the immediate penalty? Well, they're kicked out of the garden. So they can't walk with God. So they can't dwell with Him anymore. And then think about it. The entire purpose of salvation from there on is getting God back with his people. When God pulls his people out of Egypt, what does he teach them how to do? He teaches them how to build a tent. Why? So that he can dwell in their midst. When Jerusalem is captured, 
God has Solomon build a temple. Why? So that his glory can rest on it. So that he can be in the middle of his people again. When John starts his gospel, the gospel that we're spending our morning in this morning, when the Word comes, when God incarnates, why does he come? The Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And we have seen his glory. The whole purpose of salvation is to get God back in your life so that you can dwell with him. Paul says, Jesus died to bring us to God. So you were built for this. You were made for this. So it should come as no surprise that number two, it is the knowledge of God that you're actually really looking for. We look for so many things. We look for purpose in life. We look for fulfillment. We look for that perfect soulmate. We look for all of this stuff. And yet... The Bible, in one fell swoop, tells us where does it all terminate? Where does it all end? What is the heart of what we're looking for? James 4, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Everything you want. When you kiss your daughter goodnight, and you think, man, this is one of the best things in the world. That is a shadow of what God is like. That came out of his mind and his heart. He invented that for you to experience just a little bit of what he is like. When you look at the Grand Canyon or go out at night to gaze at the stars, who made them? Who did they testify to? Not to themselves. They're not saying anything. But even more so, look at the person of Christ. As you grow in godliness, as you read the scriptures, the person of Christ grows more and more beautiful. Look at how he loved people. Doesn't he just do it perfectly? He's, he's firm at exactly the right times. He's never too harsh. Look at the way he pardons the adulteress, the way he, he lovingly disciplines and directs his disciples. Never, ever loses his temper. Isn't He's, he's the perfect one. He's, he's the one we want to be near. We just have to open our eyes to see it. Third, we always substitute lesser gifts of the gospel for this. Earlier I said it, salvation isn't about going to heaven. That's just one example of so many gifts that we put in front of it. John Piper, who's been very helpful to me in developing these thoughts, he says this in his book, God is the Gospel. Many people seem to embrace the good news without embracing God. Amen. There is no sure evidence that we have a new heart just because we want to escape hell. That's a perfectly natural desire, not a supernatural one. It doesn't take a new heart to want the relief of forgiveness or the removal of wrath or the inheritance of the world. All of those things are understandable without any spiritual change. You don't need to be born again to want those things. The devil wants them. It's not wrong to want them. Indeed, it would be folly not to. But the evidence that we have been changed is that we want these things because they bring us to God. Let me steal another illustration from Dr. Piper on this. Why do you want forgiveness when you have wronged your spouse, right? It's, uh, let's, let's paint the picture. You, you go home, guys, you're getting home from work on Monday night. It's been a really long day, and you've had whatever happened at the office. So you're getting, you, you get out of the car, you're thinking, man, I'm just going to go in, I'm going to relax. And you walk in the door, and dinner ain't ready, 
and your five-year-old's running around with a diaper on its head instead of his butt, and life is crazy, and the first thing that pops in out of your sinful heart and through your mouth is, what the heck were you doing all day? And instantly you know, ooh, okay, that was not the side of me that's supposed to come out. And so after dinner, the temperature in the house has dropped. So the question becomes, why do you want forgiveness? And if your answer is, well, because I don't want to feel guilty anymore, or because I, 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 because I want her to do stuff for me tonight, I want her to wash the dishes, or I want her to be affectionate towards me, that's a dumb answer. Your wife's not going to want that answer. You want forgiveness because you want the relationship. You want to be near her. You want to have her heart again. Friends, do we want forgiveness from Christ just because we want this weight taken off of our shoulders? Do we want forgiveness from Christ just because we want him to give us good stuff? Or do we go, Jesus, forgive me so that I might know you so that this relationship can be repaired, that the one person who has given all for me and loved me that much, I could love him back. Finally, number four, this thought will free you up for purpose in your Christian walk. Let me ask it this way. Is your Christian walk mainly about knowing or doing? We can really easily slip into aimless doing. Matthew 7, 21, Jesus talks about endless doers. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name all that these people are good doers? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And he will declare to them, depart from me. I never knew you. So do you go around in your life doing a lot? And we, we talk about these, we talk about very noble things. The Christian life is about beating sin. The Christian life is about doing ministry. The Christian life is about telling other people about Jesus. These are all awesome parts of the Christian life, and we have to talk about them. But none of them can actually be the heart of the Christian life. None of them can actually be the heart of the Christian life. Even on this earth, your life can't fully be about just telling people about Jesus. Why? Because none of those things can answer the why question. All of those things are actions. They're not ends. Why do you want to beat sin? Ask yourself that question. Why do I want to beat sin? Is it because I have to? Is it because I don't want to disappoint God? Is it because I, I, just, I feel like that's the right kind of person and I want to be the right kind of person? Friends, none of those are grace. Why do I want to beat sin? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I want to beat sin because I know Jesus. Why do I want to tell other people about Jesus? Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of salvation so that I might teach sinners your way. I want to tell other people about Jesus because I know what it feels like to be saved. Because I know him. Friends, knowing precedes doing. And when you know Christ, the work becomes easy, the burden becomes light. 
because you have taken your yoke upon Him. You're standing next to Him, and it is fellowship that drives the doing. So finally this morning, do you know God? Not did you walk an aisle. Not did you take communion with us this morning. Not do you know a lot about Him. Not have you had perfect Sunday school attention. Do you know God? Do you love Him? Friends, that's the heart of the gospel. That's what it means to be saved, is to have your heart warmed to love God. Are you here because your soul was awakened and you have seen Christ as beautiful and wonderful and you're willing to suffer the loss of anything else just so that you can walk into heaven with nothing but rags and say, I am rich. Friends, if you can't answer that, search your hearts. Jesus doesn't want a bunch of doers. He wants knowers. And don't leave today without meeting him. Don't turn away because this is eternal life that they might know him. Christian, are you burned out? Have you been working hard on your Christian life because it's the right thing to do? Because you don't want to screw up because it happened to be the thing in your devotional this week? Or are you working hard in the midst of your Christian life because the God of the universe loves you? And He wants to know you. Christian, awaken again to this truth. This is eternal life, that they might know Him. Let's pray. Father, Awaken our hearts again. You alone have the words of eternal life. You alone are worthy of praise. You alone are worth living for. And yet we cannot see it, Father, without the eyes of our heart being opened. So open the eyes of our hearts this morning to see and know Christ. We say it in Jesus' name. Amen.